You will not hear today's passage at many weddings, funerals, or graduation ceremonies. At first glance, it doesn't seem socially relevant. It's about a meeting between Paul and the apostles that seems so distant from the concerns of the 21st century. But the results of this meeting had huge consequences for all of us. Without the events described here, the early church might have split, resulting in two separate religions. Christianity then, as we know it today, might not exist. Let's check it out. This is in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Again, you can follow along at ljc.life. If you'd like to, there's some sermon notes on there. And the scripture is on there also. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is Paul writing. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this night for this opportunity to come together to honor you and your Son in the power of your Spirit. And so we ask you, Father, please speak to our hearts tonight through your Word and in the power of your Spirit so that we might come to know your Son better tonight than we did yesterday. And so that we might walk in the power of your Word and your Spirit as we leave. And Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what's happening here? What's going on is false teachers were telling new Christians that Paul was preaching his own made-up gospel. Okay? They were saying that, that 
Paul's gospel was a false gospel of easy believism. Easy believism. They were claiming that the true gospel required belief, yes, but also the good works of Judaism. So it required both. It was grace plus Judaism. Jesus plus Judaism. Jesus plus good works. Okay? They said that Paul's salvation by grace was too easy. It was too simple. This passage that we just read reveals two important things to us tonight. What the true gospel is and what the true gospel does. What the true gospel is and what the true gospel does. Number one, what the true gospel is. Now, Paul received direct revelation from Jesus. I would assume that a person who receives direct revelation from Jesus does not need theological help from anyone, including from the apostles. Okay, Paul doesn't need their help. Therefore, he didn't need the apostles to confirm his gospel for his own sake. He got it directly from Christ. Okay, He didn't need it for his own sake, but what he did need uh, their approval was, was for those young Christians that he had been teaching. Okay, What he wanted those young Christians to see is that Paul's gospel is the same as the Twelve's gospel. right? So this is the purpose of the meeting. Paul didn't need confirmation from the Twelve. He was pretty secure in his own gospel since he got it straight from the author of the gospel. right? So he knew that if, if these young Christians sided with the false teachers that his ministry efforts would be in vain, which is what he's referencing there in verse 2. So, Paul compared his gospel to the apostles' gospel. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 and 2. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. Again, he's hearing straight from Jesus. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, that's the twelve, uh, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So how do you know that you are believing or teaching the true gospel? How do you know? There's only one way to know. You have to compare your gospel to the gospel of the apostles. That's the only way to do it, right? So you can't take a preacher's word for it. You can't take a priest's word for it. You can't take a book's, some random spiritual book's word for it. You have to go right to the source. You have to go right to the words of Scripture, right to the words of the apostles, right to the words of Jesus, and compare. That's the only way to do it, right? Uh, and so I, I think we should be doing this quite often, probably a lot more than we realize, because it's so easy to stray from the true gospel. Very few of us just quickly do a 180 and abandon the gospel. What we'll do, it's called gospel drift. We'll just slowly drift away from the gospel of grace. And the only way to get back is through God's word, through the words of the apostles. So don't take any preacher's word for it, including mine. Including mine. Take the apostle's word for it. And as it turns out, 
Paul's gospel was identical to the apostles' gospel. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9. Verse 6, uh, he says, As for those who were held in high esteem, those are the apostles, uh, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Right? They didn't, add, they didn't change it one iota. Verse 7, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay, so Paul's gospel is the true gospel, right? It's the same as the apostles. Well, now the question is, what is the true gospel? He says it right here in verse 9. Grace. Grace. Right? What does he say? He says that they gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when? When they recognized the grace given to me. You see, Paul did not earn his salvation. He did not earn it. He did not earn his place in the kingdom. He did not earn his place as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was literally persecuting Jesus and his church. The only thing Paul had earned was hellfire. That's it. That's all he'd earned. But Paul was able to enter the kingdom of God, not by anything Paul did, but by the 100% sheer grace of Christ. And that's it. The same way you and I enter. Sheer grace. It has nothing to do with us or our merits or what we've been able to earn. It has everything to do with Jesus and his grace and his choosing of us. And that's it. We have the gospel of grace. Okay, point number two, what does the true gospel of grace do? What does it do? I think in this passage, Paul shows us three things the true gospel does. Three things. Number one, the true gospel frees us from works-based righteousness. It's no accident that Paul brought Titus, a flesh-and-blood Gentile, with him to meet with the apostles. I just... I think Paul's too clever. <laughs> I think he intentionally brought a Gentile with him to prove a point. You see, because according to the false teachers, if Titus was a true convert to Christianity, he needed to be circumcised. But look at verse 3. Verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Again, the verse, not even Titus was circumcised, will not make it into many weddings. It won't be embroidered on many pillows. But maybe it should. Maybe it should. Do you see how profound it is? 
it proves that Paul's salvation by grace is the true gospel. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, period. Period. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's just Jesus. It's just grace. We are free from works-based religion. We are free. Christ has made us so. Believing in Jesus, though it might seem too simple for some, is all that is required. That's all that is required. Now, works-based Christianity is unfortunately prevalent. It's widespread in America today. At most churches today in America, that's what you would hear, is a works-based version of the religion. It makes everything about your behavior. Don't drink or chew or run with girls who do. But grace-based Christianity, true Christianity, makes everything about Jesus' behavior. His perfect righteousness is credited to your account by grace through faith. Paul says in Romans 1.17, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The true gospel says our righteousness is received not achieved received not achieved okay the second thing the true gospel does is it emboldens us against false teachers let's look at verses four through five four through five paul says this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in christ jesus and to make us slaves we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Having confidence in the true gospel emboldened Paul and Titus to stand against false gospels. Now, there is one false gospel our secular culture is preaching to us right now, one that we must not give in to for a moment. It's what I call the gospel of freedom. That sounds so lovely, doesn't it? gospel of freedom. In fact, it could be argued that an individual's freedom is the main theme and value of our society today. The main one. Philosopher Charles Taylor says that, the, that modern people define freedom as having the ability to do and be absolutely anything one wants, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. The only thing they won't tolerate is intolerance. Dr. Taylor goes on to note that modern people see this definition of freedom as obvious and self-evident. It's as concrete as gravity. But is it though? Defining freedom as the ability to do whatever I want is in reality absurd it's absurd let's think just for a second 
about how freedom actually works. So when I was younger and single, I had the freedom to play a lot of golf. And I played a lot. That's where all my time and money went. I played at least four to five times per week. At least. Sometimes 36 holes on those days. But after I met a young lady named Catherine, my golf playing dropped to one to two times per month. What happened? Did Catherine demand that I no longer play so much golf? Maybe in her mind she did. (laughs) But she never explicitly said a word about it. So what happened? I chose to give up my freedom of playing golf so much. I chose to give it up. Why? So I can have the freedom to be with her. I'd have a lot more time and a lot more money if I gave up my freedom to play golf. And so I did. You see, in real life, there are millions of different freedoms out there that we can choose from. Millions. And no one can have them all. No one. Not Bill Gates. Not Jeff Bezos, nobody. You can't have them all. See, I couldn't spend all my time playing golf and all my time with Catherine. The question then is not how can we live in complete freedom? Complete freedom is impossible. The correct question is which freedom is most important? Which freedom is is the most truly liberating. For me, the most liberating freedom was with Catherine. True freedom, then, is not how the culture defines it. This gospel of freedom that they are preaching is a false gospel. There's no such thing as freedom without restraints. There is no such thing. True freedom comes from the loss of some freedoms to gain others. It is not the absence of constraints, but it is choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Now, Christianity is seen by many modern people as the enemy of freedom. Rather than being indifferent to Christianity, many modern people are now hostile towards it because they see it as too constraining on our freedoms. But that's because they have a false view of freedom. They don't understand what freedom actually is. If, like we said, freedom is not the absence of all constraints, but is instead having the proper constraints, then Christianity is, ironically, the greatest source of freedom in the universe. You see, we all have at least one master. At least one. For some, it's money. For others, it's family. 
For others, it's their achievement. For others, it's their good looks, et cetera, et cetera, right? We'd go on forever. We all have at least one, and this is simply unavoidable. The human heart will always tie itself to a master, or what the Bible calls an idol. Martin Luther said that our hearts are idol factories. And since we are, we're all being constrained by certain things, we all have these masters, these things that control us. The important question then becomes, which master out there, which master will most affirm, cherish, empower, and honor us, since we have to have one? Which one will most affirm, cherish, empower, and honor us? I'd like to put forward a candidate. What if Christianity is true? What if, as the New Testament declares, that our Creator came to earth to become one of us? to suffer and die for us in our place and to be resurrected to new life so that he could give us new life in him. What if the master of all things came to serve us and to wash our feet? This, of course, wouldn't mean that serving Christ would give us no constraints. It would. But if we decided to serve the one who serves us, the one who created us in his own image, the one who died for us, then it seems reasonable to conclude that we would be taking on the most liberating of all constraints in Christ. Okay, and the third thing the true gospel does, and we'll close with this, the true gospel compels us to action. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Paradoxically, grace is not freedom to sin. It is freedom to serve. It's freedom to serve for the right reasons. Isn't it interesting that after this extremely important, saving the church from splitting discussion on the gospel, that it ends with an admonition to care for the poor. Isn't that interesting? Isn't the gospel and care for the poor two different subjects? Why would this gospel meeting end with an admonition to care for the poor on these two different things? Actually, no, they're not. The gospel and care for the poor fit together hand in glove. Hand in glove. Concern for the poor was a hallmark of Jesus' teaching. 
In Matthew 11, Jesus proves to John the Baptist that he is the Messiah, the Christ, by pointing out that he heals diseases and preaches to the poor. That's how he proved he was the Messiah to John the Baptist. Jesus taught in Luke 6 that anyone touched by the merciful God would automatically, in turn, be merciful toward the poor. Automatically. Jesus also taught in Matthew 25 that God will judge whether or not we have justifying faith by looking at our service to the poor, the refugee, the sick, and the prisoner. Of course, the ultimate example of a life like this is Christ himself. On Christmas morning, the king of glory literally moved in with the poor. And not only was he raised by the poor, throughout his life he lived, ate, and associated with the lowest class of society. Jesus, friend of the marginalized, the oppressed, and the outcast. But how does this relate to the gospel? Well, let's think about it. The very gospel itself, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is a ministry to the poor. How so? Who are the poor? You and me. You see, regardless of our monetary standing, you and I were spiritually bankrupt. We're bankrupt. We were spiritual outcasts because of our constant rebellion against God. We owed God a debt we could never pay. So our merciful God paid the debt for us on the cross. And when it finally dawns on you just how merciful God has been towards you, the spiritually poor, it won't take long for you to have the same concern for others who are spiritually and physically poor. The gospel compels us to love others the way we've been loved. The richest of all became the poorest of all for you and for me. R.S. Thomas wrote a poem called The Coming. It's about Jesus' choice to come to the mess we created. This is the poem. And God held in his hand a small globe. Look, he said. The sun looked. Far off as through water, he saw a scorched land of fierce color. The light burned there. Crusted buildings cast their shadows. A bright serpent, a river uncoiled itself, radiant with slime. 
On a bare hill, a bare tree saddened the sky. Many people held out their thin arms to it, as though waiting for a vanished April to return to its crossed boughs. The sun watched them and said, Let me go there. Let me go there. The richest of all became poorest of all for you. Let us dwell on this wondrous truth until the power comes. Let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus, that, that you had to come and die for us is humbling. But that you wanted to come and die for us is freeing and empowering. And it makes us want to sing. It makes us want to dance for you. It makes us want to serve you and to love you with our whole lives. Because just saying thank you, Lord, just doesn't quite seem to cut it. What a Savior we have. Lord, that you would come to the mess that we created. Join us in our darkness and our filth and take on that very darkness and filth to save us. What a Savior. What a Father. What a friend. What a King. Lord, help us to gaze at your beauty and the wonder of the cross so that we might not keep you to ourselves, but so that we might turn around and spread your love and care to the poor. Not only the physically poor, but to the spiritually poor. Help us use your mercy as motivation. When we try to become arrogant and self-centered and narcissistic, Lord, bring us back by the power of your Spirit to the cross so that it might dawn on us the infinite mercy our poor souls have received. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.